Hello and welcome to Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary. This is your pure gold commentary podcast. And as the name suggests, this is a commentary. It's not a study guide. So grab your study guide if you're not driving or running while listening to us. My name is Morgan Vincent. And in this week's episode, we have Natasha Sua. Did I say it correct? Yeah, you did. Yeah. All right. Natasha Sua here is on the pastoral team at Avondale University Church here in the North New South Wales Conference. And we are going to be continuing our journey through in the crucible with Christ. And today, especially, we're going to be focusing on extreme heat. We've been looking at ideas of refining and suffering and growth and things that come through this. But today we're going to be looking at extreme heat. What do we do when we have the most severe tests and trials and challenging experience. So with this in mind, let's now go to the discussion. I don't know about you, Tash, but sometimes when these trials and these situations and these tests come, they in actual fact can cause me to sometimes think that I'm being separated from God. And this is perhaps no different from the time that that Abraham, and we're going to look at Abraham, that he had this situation. But Abraham wasn't the only one in the Bible. We think of Hosea or Job or Paul and so many others, Jesus himself. They went through these severe trials, but because of their relationship with God, they were able to endure the extreme heat. So let's begin with Abraham. And in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to do a very, very, very difficult thing, which must have been perhaps the most severe trial for him in his life. No doubt up until that point, but certainly in his own life, I would suggest. Tash, what did Abraham, what was he asked to do? So we see here in Genesis 22 that Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, he had been waiting a long time for his son Isaac. So to hear God say these words to him was hard, was really hard. It seems a strange request because you would just, you'd almost like, what kind of picture of God is this to Mm -hmm. say that he's actually asking for Abraham to sacrifice, to give up? his son, like this promised son. And you think Abraham now, he's about a hundred years old. He's now received and he's holding and guiding and raising this child of promise that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But this seems strange because even after Abraham received these promises, it's now this almost cutting off of the seed. It's as though God has given this promise. And now God is now saying, I want you to sacrifice your son. The mental anguish and the torment and the wrestle that that Abraham would have been going through, you know, I guess we need to then think and ask the question, how do you think Abraham knew that it was God who was asking him to do this? Was it God or was it like a demon or was it Satan? Like, how do we know for sure that it was actually God who was prompting Abraham to do this and not Satan prompting Abraham to do this? Any thoughts with that, Tash? So it tells us here in James 2.23, because of Abraham's faith, he was a friend of God. And in other words, it means like Abraham had a very close relationship with God. When you have a close relationship with anybody, you know what they sound like. You know who they are. You know their voice. And he would have known how to distinguish his voice from Satan's voice. And Mm. so it is important for us to not only understand this experience, but also to have the same experience as well. And so... Look, Abraham takes Isaac and he goes up to Mount Moriah and continues on in the story of Genesis 22. And then he builds an altar there and he binds Isaac onto this altar and he brings wood for a burnt offering. And then he stretches out his hands with a knife to slay his son. But did Abraham then go through with the sacrifice of his son Isaac on the altar as God had asked him to? Well, no. We see that something happens. God provides something. And so we see 
there, God commissioned an angel to actually stop Abraham. So look, Abraham was fully intending to go through what God had asked him to do. And again, it goes back to this relationship that he has with him because he knows God's voice. He mm. knows that God wants something good for him, even though it actually it's, it's actually hurting him. This is the son that he hoped for, to sacrifice his son and to go through this. But at the very last minute, we see this angel. So what do you think was God's purpose of putting Abraham and Isaac through this ordeal, through this harrowing ordeal? It's Look, it's an interesting thought because we're talking about this idea of extreme heat and the pressure and the tension and the situation that, that Abraham's going through. A, a few thoughts come to right mind, a few reasons as well. Firstly, God knows everything. And God knows that Abraham's faith and obedience, that as he is put through this test, that God would actually make clear what's going on. Yeah. Secondly, Okay, Jesus speaks of the agony which he endured during the dark days of that fearful trial, that actually there would come an understanding from that experience. And the interesting thought, and thirdly I want to add, is that it's not explicitly said in Scripture, but if you read between the lines and if you follow within the grand arc of what the Scriptures are telling us, it's this. Abraham had enough faith to believe that God would provide a promised son, that even if God asked him to sacrifice that son, that God could raise him from the dead. Now, it's a radical thought. It may seem a crazy thought, but follow it through, right? Because if Isaac dies and that's that, how else is Messiah going to come? Because the promise was in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, the seed would come. Through you, Messiah would come. Abraham, I believe, trusts to God believes in God that as God provided the son of promise, so too, even if that son would die, would be able to raise him from the dead. And this is, this I believe fits within the story of scripture. Agree, disagree, Tash? You can disagree. No, I, I want to agree this time because it's a covenant promise. Yeah, that's And so right. God would always fulfill his end of the covenant. Mm. And so, yeah, fulfilling it through Abraham. So uh, this trust is beautiful, isn't it? And so it says, it says here as well in Genesis 22 that the, about this angel, if had not stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God, did Abraham then have confidence that God's promise of his seed being continued on through Isaac would be fulfilled? And I think what you just shared there definitely answers this question. And again, it can be answered in Hebrews 11 verse 19. It says, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So let us now move on to the second Bible character, which is Hosea. This prophet lived in the darkest period of the history of the kingdom of Israel, just before the nation was taken captive by Assyria in about 785 BC. This is interesting. We're coming to Hosea. Now, Tash just gave us some background, some context, which is great. Hosea. Hosea was someone who Hosea, the, the book of Hosea is this book in the Old Testament. There it is there, right after the book of Daniel. Hosea was commanded to do something. And it's not something that I necessarily tell a friend to do, or it seems a very strange thing to do. But nonetheless, let's follow the story. Let's see what's going on here. Hosea was commanded by God to marry an unfaithful woman. Let's just call it for what it is. She was a harlot. So this woman was called Gomer. She had three children. Then Gomer runs away and has children with other men. And then God calls Hosea to take his wife back and fully show his love to her again. If, you're, if we're talking about extreme heat, pressure, tension, this is just crazy. But yet this experience actually teaches Hosea something. 
And it reveals in chapter 2 of Hosea that the prophet Hosea was to experience the pain of having to go through the experience of having an unfaithful wife who ran away, who had children with other men. And God was revealing to Hosea that through Gomer, this would be how God would, firstly, how God feels about the nation of Israel, and secondly, the consequences of sin, and thirdly, the faithful love of God in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. So then with this in mind, now Hosea does this. Hosea, in actual fact, follows through with what God asked him to do. It's an incredible thing. You think about this, like he goes out and draws her back, loves her faithfully, brings her back. And it's with this faithful love that Hosea, in a sense, wins his wife back. And this really, as it says there in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, I believe that just like the love of the Lord for his children. It's almost an object lesson, if you will, an, an acted, lived out experience between Hosea and Goma, which is to reveal what it's like between God and his people. Now with this in mind, Tash, why? What's going on here? Like, why would it be that Hosea has to go through an experience like this to understand what God is going through? What a great question. And he, like you were saying, he was literally a Christ uh, an object lesson, but through his life, he was to show how God wants to be in relationship with his people, even though they make choices, even though they go far from him, even though they don't want him, God would, would make the means, would try to be in relationship with his people. And so Hosea's life shows this and some of the children he has are not even sure are his children. Yeah. Yeah. And then Hosea 2 verse 2 Hosea uses his two daughters and appeals to their mother and the people of Israel are charged to contend and plead with their mother and the nation of Israel to repent and to return to God. But this doesn't, this means that if they didn't repent, God would accept them back because of his long suffering. God is showing mm. just how patient he is, how much he loves them and how much he again wants to be in relationship with them. So with some other tactics that God would use, God would also use this to discipline Israel for their own spiritual benefit. And then they would also experience this hedge or this wall, which was the Assyrian captivity. I want to jump in here, Tash, because the further discipline that, that, that would come upon Gomer and ultimately Israel comes from God's heart of wanting to discover or to uncover and reveal. God wanted you know, the shame, the contempt, the public disgrace that would come upon Gomer and Israel that would ultimately ruin their reputation. Well, God also wants to bring to the attention of Israel and to Gomer that, look, you've actually taken things for granted. And I think this is so easy for us at times in, in the kind of world we live in, in the kind of society that the first world, the Western world is, is that um, we have so much. And even with the chaos and the, the craziness of the last couple of years and the climate we find ourselves in now, it's not too different from the story of Israel. They, they've taken things for granted, their food, their food, their corn, their wine, their oil. They've taken their prosperity in trading and the commerce with other countries, the silver, the gold. They've, done all, they've, they've taken all of these things for granted. And it's not that they took it for granted and said, this is what we have provided. If that wasn't bad enough, they went another step further and they said, Baal gave us these. They've now gone and said, Yahweh didn't provide these things for us, but Baal did. So God would take those things away. Now, this is a thought that I believe to be true. And it summarize, summarizes many situations we see throughout the Bible. And it's this. God speaks to his people through blessings bestowed, but he also speaks to his people through blessings removed. Bit of a 
my wow. drop moment. No, it really is. Right? Because he, is. This, is, this is what's going on in the story of Hosea. God's people, like, yes, God was long-suffering time and time again, but eventually God has to do something and intervene and interject himself into this situation to get their attention. So he starts removing these blessings from them. Why? In order to get their attention so that they may, may realize that the error of their way, repent, turn back to him. So the extreme heat that we find ourselves in, it could be because, and we've discussed this in weeks gone past, it could be because of Satan, absolutely. It could also be because of the, the, the folly and the error of our way, that there are consequences to decisions we make. So with all that in mind, let's transition now. And we want to look at a third example of being in the crucible of extreme heat, in that point of pressure where things are just building up. Job. The story of Job, the man of Job in the Bible, is an incredible story because it opens up and it describes for us who this man was. And the Bible gives comment that Job is described as a being uh, who was perfect, upright, a man who feared God and departs from evil. We have this beautiful picture of Job as someone who rose up early and spent a good amount of time praying and interceding for his family. And so the opening chapter sees him described as a successful businessman, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, etc., etc. He also has seven sons, three daughters. Job is a godly man whose success comes from his close relationship with God. So then, there's a slight change. Something happens in the story of Job. What goes on? What do we see happening, Tash, within the story of Job? It's, it seems to start out so well, but for those who are familiar with the story of Job, you think, oh, it, it takes some detours and some turns. What does God reveal in the book of Job about the extreme heat? and perhaps the origin or what's going on behind this extreme heat. So when we see this extreme heat, there's a change of location from earth to heaven. And I'm just going to read Job 1 verse 6 to 12. And it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on this person. So where this meeting is with the sons of God and Satan was there, he was there representing to the earth. But what does the Lord first say to Satan to refute his rulership over the earth? So verse 8 says, have you considered hmm. my servant Job? And so Satan is refuting Job's faithfulness. But God is very sure. He's, he knows that Job is not only a man of God, but a man after his own heart. Satan, he maintains this idea that Job is being good because of all the benefits he's getting. In other words, Job's only following you because you're giving him good stuff. And God's, no, I actually know Job's heart. I actually know where Job is at. And something very interesting happens. Satan is essentially allowed to do whatever he wants to Job except... Except to take his life. To take his life. Satan, in a sense, is about to embark on wreaking havoc in the life of Job. But the one thing he can't do, as you said, Tash, is take his life. 
the rest of Job, the, the book of Job, is essentially this long and winding journey of Job navigating through extreme heat, pressures, trials, circumstances, miserable, comforting friends, friends. if you mm. can call them friends, like people saying, look, Job, just give up on this whole God thing. Like clearly it's not working out for you. But in all of this, in all of what Job goes through, Job still maintains his commitment to God. Job still maintains that. And he knew, he didn't have all the answers, but he knew that in the pro- he was trusting the process. It can sometimes be a bit of a cliche thing that we say, but Job was trusting the process. That being that eventually through all of this, God would be vindicated. And yeah, there were times where he was like struggling. Yeah, there were times where he was feeling the pressure and the intensity. Yeah. And he did cry out, didn't he? Yeah. Fully. Fully. But in all of this, as I said, he holds on and he's able to say, though he slay me. This is one of the great phrases from the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And in another instance, it says, I've known my redeemer and I know that he will stand on the last day. Job knew his redeemer. Job knew his God and knew that even though he may be slain and go through moments of extreme pain and heat and pressure and crucibles, he would still trust God. It's It's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. It really is. And to trust that Mm. God will be faithful even until the end. And so there is this question, what can we learn from Job's experience, especially from the book of Job? And to answer that question, I give you Romans 8.28, and it says, And we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Mm. So you like Job, and often even in our own experience, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are according to his purpose. And so it is our job to just to continue to be faithful to God like Job, no matter what happens in this life. You just read the verse, Tash, there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And I've been convinced of this For a long time. It's a little segue. It's a little Morgan Vincent, like Bible study, Bible reading tip 101. And it's this, we can learn something from the text of scripture by what it says and also by what it doesn't say. And it's this, Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good. The text doesn't say, and we know that all good things work together for good. No, no, no. It says all things, the good, the bad, and indifferent. All things along the full spectrum of human experiences and things that would come our way, good, bad, difficult, painful, joyful, etc. All of those things work together for good. Not just the good, everything. With that in mind, Job continues to be faithful to God and Job would be no matter what happens to him in his life. As you alluded to, Tash, we're going to look at Paul in our closing moments because Paul is someone who endured far more than most people. Paul was someone who wasn't always Paul. He was Saul. He was someone who persecuted the church and was very much an enemy of the Christian movement, the Christian church in, at, at its, from its inception, from its beginning. But Paul was someone who did experience suffering. And Paul did have these crucibles along the way. And he says something about it in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. And he says this. I'll read from verse 3 to give context. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And Tash, I want to make the suggestion that the God of the Bible is different from every other God. And for me, a little bit of a segue, a little bit of a little anecdote, my own wrestle and journey with 
with God suffering and all of that actually hasn't driven me away from God. It's actually driven me closer to God. Because when I've thought about it and I've asked the questions, I've sought answers and I've looked to what other faiths and other traditions may say about how they navigate evil and pain and suffering, it just didn't add up. It just didn't make sense. But when I see the God of Scripture as revealed in the Bible in the person of Jesus Christ, as Paul would say, as a God who actually comforts us in our tribulation, we're not seeing a distant God here. We're actually seeing a God who's very close, who is very proximate to us and comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble. So if you're going through trouble, Tash, you can then help somebody else. If I'm going through trouble, you can go through someone else and you can, you can help them in that suffering. And so that's a really beautiful thing because Paul is someone who gives us this encouragement. It's a principle from the life of Jesus as well to, to comfort us. Tash, any further thoughts with Paul? Some other things we can learn from Paul, especially when we're in, in the heat of it, when we're being tested in it, is that when we're in this depths, the Father can still intervene to bring his compassion and comfort. We may despair, even of our own lives and even be killed, but fear not. God is teaching us to rely on him and we can trust in him. For our God is a God who raises the dead. So even if we do die in these trials and in this heat, it is important to recognize that our ultimate goal is to be faithful to God in this life no matter what the cost, and therefore gain eternal life in heaven with Jesus when he returns again to take us home. That, that does summarize what we've learned from Abraham, from Hosea, from Job, and now from Paul, that we can actually learn. And rather than saying, God, why is this happening to me? It's almost like we can almost say, God, thank you. Thank you for this. It's almost a radical thing because it's, James would say, count it all joy when you fall into these trials. When we're in the heat, when we're in the moment, as you said, Tash, that God would first remind us that this extreme heat, it's not to destroy us, but to destroy our sin. It's to purify us to, to, so that the glory of God would be revealed more and more in our lives. Secondly, that God's extreme heat is not to make us miserable, but rather it's to make us pure, which is as we were created to be. And thirdly, God's care for us is actually through all things. Okay, it's constant, it's tender. He won't leave us no matter what happens to us. And we can hear this again and again and think, yeah, that's a cute little saying that God is with us and he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. But it's actually true. It really is true. And so for us, Tash, we've discussed, we've looked at situations of extreme heat in the Bible and how those people responded to it and the importance, the central importance of, of having that connection, of that communion, that time with God these people, Abraham, Hosea, Job, and Paul, all had that experience with God and were able to, with God's power, with God's help, get through these times of extreme heat. Any closing comment, thought, Tash, to wrap up our time today? I just want to take us back to Romans eight twenty-eight, and where it says, all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are according to his purpose. And just the beautiful relationship that Abraham had with God and the he knew that he could trust them, even though he couldn't see and everything was so uncertain. And even though the heat was on, he could trust that mm. God was faithful. That's awesome. Thanks, Tash, for joining us today. Being a part of this discussion and yeah, guiding and helping us better understand how to navigate through the extreme heat and God's purpose and intent for that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you like the conversation, tell your friends. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening right now. 
Sabbath School Quarterly Commentary is a production of the Sabbath School Department of the North New South Wales Conference. This week's episode was produced by Henrique Felix and Morgan Vincent. That's it. We'll see you next week.